passion for God, and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. There are a couple other announcements that you can find in your bulletin, uh, things coming up this week and uh, over the following weeks, but I'll let you look at those uh, yourself. We're going to transition now into our sermon time, and I want to begin our sermon with a quote from, this is one of my favorite quotes, uh, it's from A.W. Tozer, and A.W. Tozer was a pastor in the 1900s, and I've, I might have shared this quote with uh, our church before down here in Spencer, uh, but I want to bring it up again because of how relevant it is to our conversation this morning and really our conversation over the last couple of weeks. And the, the quote is this, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. In other words, what Tozer is saying when he says that is your understanding of God is so important to who you are It's intrinsic to your identity. It influences every other thing about you. And as we've been looking at other religions and at different cults, it's easy to see how this kind of plays out. See, it's relatively easy for us to look at Hinduism or to look at Buddhism or Islam and to look at their understanding of God and to see how that plays out in their understanding of the rest of their lives. But when Tozer said this quote, he wasn't talking about Christianity compared to other religions. He was talking about, within Christianity, different understandings of God himself. See, within Christianity itself, there are some vast differences of opinion on what God is like, on who God is like, and a lot of them are not found in the Bible. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we're going through a series called Alternatives to Christianity. This is our last week looking at alternatives to Christianity. And this morning, we're going to look at cultural Christianity. It's going to be a really interesting topic because it's not an official religion. It's just looking at what our culture thinks of as Christian, to look at the watered-down form of American Christianity. And if we were to put this Christianity underneath the microscope, we would see that the Christianity of America is vastly different than what the Bible tells us about the Christian story. In fact, last week we talked a little bit about ultimate authority and where we place the ultimate authority in our lives. And as we look at American watered-down cultural Christianity... We're going to see that it's actually more influenced by our popular culture. It's more influenced by our own personal experience than it is by the Bible itself. See, we live in what is called a Christian nation, and we can argue on whether that term has ever been a good nickname for America or not, but it's really interesting that a Christian nation like America has some radically different, unbiblical views of God in our society. Now, as we look at cultural Christianity, we're going to keep coming back to two different myths. These are two myths that are probably the most important things uh, to know about cultural Christianity. I want to bring them up right here at the very beginning, so that way we can keep referring back to them and continue to debunk these things. And the first myth that we're going to look at is this, that God wants us to be good. If you were to approach the random person on the street, 
and you were to ask them what Christianity is about, they would probably say, a lot of them would probably say, that Christianity is about being good. It's about being a good person. In fact, they would say that that's what basically all religions are about. It's about being good and living a good life. That's what God wants for us. I want to say right here at the beginning, that's not what Christianity is about. We're going to look at that more uh, in our conversation this morning, but right here at the very beginning, that's not what Christianity is about. The second myth that's really popular in cultural Christianity is this, that God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy. It's a really interesting concept. In fact, it's more, uh, it's more influenced by our affluent culture, our rich, wealthy society, than it is by what the Bible says. If you were to share this phrase, that God wants me to be happy, with a Christian in the middle of Africa or in the Middle East undergoing persecution, or if you were to share it with a Christian living in India in severe, extreme poverty, and you were to say, God wants us to be happy, that's the purpose of Christianity, they would give you a pretty weird look. Because it just doesn't make sense to them. God wants us to be happy is our second myth that we're going to be looking at this morning. See, these two myths are really interesting because they're pretty, uh, they're, they're pretty desirable for us as Christians. And the reason they're desirable for us is because there's a grain of truth in them. See, both of these things take Christian truths, things that are found in the Bible, and twist them and make them the ultimate thing when they're really supposed to be just subservient doctrines of Christianity. So if you were to come up to someone and say, does God want us to be good? And I would say, well, if by that you mean, does God want us to live lives of holy gratitude to him for what he has done on the cross? And I say, yes, absolutely, God does want us to be good. If you were to come up to me and ask me, does God want us to be happy? And I would say, well, if by happy you mean God wants us to have a deep-seated joy from relationship with him, from a, a communion with him, then I would say, absolutely, God wants us to be happy. But in our society, we take these two truths that are found in Christianity and make them the most important truth of everything else. And it rules over everything, and it really waters down our faith. This morning, we're going to be looking at cultural Christianity, and as we do that, I want us to do it with uh, a sense of reflection and of self-examination. See, there might be some of us here this morning that as we're looking at cultural Christianity, we're actually going to be describing what you yourself believe. For others, you might be, as we look at this, you might be saying, well, I'm not a cultural Christian per se, but I'm drawn to that. I find myself attracted to certain areas of this, and so I want us to look at this with a, a sense of self-examination to say, you know, is this what God is, is calling me to root out of my life? And how am I going to root this out of my life? This morning, we're uh, going to be looking at this through the paradigm of a guy named Christian Smith. Christian Smith is a sociologist of religion, and uh, he wrote this book called Soul Searching about 10 years ago. Now, Soul Searching, I'm just going to say right up front, is a really difficult read. Uh, it's written like a sociology uh, work, which is not my cup of tea, but it's several hundred pages long. I, I've worked my way through it, and I'm just going to share it with you, uh, basically the main point of this book, uh, so that way you don't have to go and read it. Uh, in the middle of soul searching, he basically uh, he shares his findings from uh, several years of 
interviews with the youth of America. So about 10 years ago, Christian Smith traveled across the United States having thousands of interviews with American youth from all different religious backgrounds. And he asked them about their religious beliefs. And as he was having conversations with these people, he kept discovering that these youth were having a really tough time describing what they believed. They had a really hard time articulating their actual beliefs. What's more than that, he realized that what they believed was in something called moralistic therapeutic deism. All right? We're going to keep coming back to that, moralistic therapeutic deism. So, but just put that on the shelf for now. We'll talk about that in a second. But if you are in an older generation and you're starting to pat yourself on the back right now, say, well, at least I'm not one of those youth. At least I don't believe that thing. I want you to pause real quick. Because another thing that Christian Smith found as he was studying this was the reason why the youth of America believe in moralistic therapeutic deism, or MTD, is because the people that they looked up to, the pastors in their churches, their parents, the, uh, the people that they uh, desired and wanted to be like, they also believed in moralistic therapeutic deism. Thousands of churches in America have fallen for this false gospel. Now, what exactly is that? It's a fancy word for talking about cultural Christianity. It's going to guide our conversation this morning. And as we're looking at this, we're going to look at three crucial but sometimes subtle transitions that we see take place from biblical Christianity to cultural Christianity. As we look at these three transitions, we're going to use, uh, we're going to use this paradigm that Christian Smith gives us. And so let's go ahead and jump into to what cultural Christianity is and how do we root it out of our own lives. But before we do that, let's pause and ask for God's blessing to be with us. God, we thank you so much for your love for us. And God, as we approach this difficult topic, I pray that we would approach it with a, self, uh, with a sense of self-examination. God, that you would help us to root this out of our own lives where we are guilty of it. And Father, let us cling to the Bible and cling to biblical Christianity and seek your face in all things. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, we're going to start with these three terms, but we're going to do it backwards. So the first one we're going to look at is deism. Deism is a fancy word for saying that God is distant and uninvolved in the world today. Okay, so a lot of people believe in deism. They believe in God, but they believe that God is distant and uninvolved in the world today. A couple years ago, Baylor University did this study on American religion. And what they discovered was that anywhere from 85% to 90% of Americans believe in God. This is a far cry from what a lot of people tell us that, you know, over the last several decades, we've seen a dramatic decrease in the belief of God in America. That's the good news. 90% of America still believes in God. The bad news is, while so many people still believe in God, The influence that belief has on the rest of our lives has dramatically decreased here in the United States. So while people still believe in God, the way that that impacts the rest of their life really just doesn't matter anymore. The same study found that out a couple years ago. This belief in God has transitioned from a belief in the God of Christianity to the belief in this deistic God. A God who is distant and far removed in the world. 
it's, it's interesting to see uh, what this view of God thinks of, of him. It's uh, a God who probably created the world through something like evolution, but then after that, he just let it go. Why is it that we have so much conflict in Syria, in Israel, in the Ukraine today? It's because God is distant and uninvolved in the world today. Not only is God distant and uninvolved, but also at the same time, God is more of a force. He's kind of impersonal, and he doesn't have a being and a person that you can relate to as a, per, as a human being yourself. A lot of people in today's society like to say God is love, but what they really mean when they say that is love is God. It's a sense, this force that is at work in the world that we believe that God is impersonal and that God is distant and far removed. It's because of this belief that our actions today don't really matter according to this watered-down form of Christianity. After all, if God is so far distant, if God is so far removed and he's impersonal, then it doesn't really matter what I do with my life because God's not going to be offended by the things that I do. God isn't actually probably even going to notice the things that I do with my life. If I'm supposed to be happy in my life, which we're going to get to in a little bit, then it makes sense that I should do what I want to do regardless of what God himself thinks. So if it makes me happy to go out and get hammered every night, well, I can go ahead and do it because it doesn't matter to God. If it makes me happy to go and shack up with my girlfriend, well, it makes perfect sense in this worldview according to a deistic view of God. But also at the same time that God is distant and far removed, he's always on call. He's always there in your time of need. So if if you're having struggles and, and, and issues, then you can call to God and he will come and he'll meet you there. In 2001, after September 11th, we saw anywhere in the United States an increase in church attendance from 6% to 24% in the weeks following September 11th. A dramatic increase in the number of people who were going to church. Just a few months later, though, in December of uh, 2001, that number had dropped back to zero, or to normal, uh, whatever it had been before. This is a perfect example of this understanding of God. He's there when we need him, but when we don't need him, he's put on the shelf and he is far removed from us. It's interesting because this view of God is kind of like the genie from Aladdin. And we all know the story of Aladdin. Aladdin has this magic lamp and he's got this genie in there and and whenever he needs something, he just rubs the lamp and, and guess who pops out to help him? Well, it's the genie. And whenever he doesn't want the genie around, he just goes ahead and shoves him back in there and puts him off to the side. And this is actually a better view of God in, a, in our culture as opposed to what the Bible tells us. So what exactly does the Bible tell us about God? Well, Probably not too hard to figure out. This is dramatically different than what the Bible tells us. We see this transition in our society. This is our first transition this morning from God being large and in charge to God being distant and on call. From God being large and in charge to distant and on call. See, the Bible tells us that God is in charge of everything. We call this God's sovereignty Uh, Here at Crosswinds, we like to say that God is large and in charge. He's ruling over everything. He has authority over everything. And the Bible tells us at least four ways that God has sovereignty over our lives. Let's just look at these four things. First, God owns everything. Consider these words from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. 
Everything that God has created belongs to God. This is a life-shattering, life-altering way of looking at the world. When you recognize that everything that you, quote-unquote, own really belongs to God because he himself created it. God owns everything. Second, God has authority over everything. Consider these words from Isaiah 14. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand who is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? God is the cosmic king of the entire universe. And as the cosmic king, he has authority over all of the universe. There's never going to be a rebellion against God that will ultimately succeed because God has authority over everything. Third, God controls everything. Consider these words from Daniel 4. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes up to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? I love what Nebuchadnezzar says there in in verse 35. He does according to his will, and none can say to him, what have you done? God has authority over everything. God controls everything. And fourth, God knows everything. This is Matthew chapter 10. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are, not, are numbered. The Bible tells us that God is not a distant ruler. That God isn't in, uninvolved in our world. But rather that he is involved in every part of the world today. He's just as involved in the intimate details of our lives as he is involved with a collision of two asteroids billions of light years away from here. God knows everything and is involved in everything today. So after hearing all that stuff, you may say, okay, Jordan, I understand how cultural Christianity gets it wrong, but you're talking about this like it's good th- a good thing, that God is, is in control of everything. How is that a good thing? After all, it kind of seems like it's a little oppressive, doesn't it? Well, I love talking about God's sovereignty, the fact that God is in control of everything. Uh, It's so important for our lives as Christians. I just want to draw one application out of that, and that is in the area of suffering and in pain. See, a lot of people say that they don't believe in God because there is suffering in this world. This is called the problem of evil, and it's a question that that Christians have to answer because God is uh, supposedly on his throne, and yet there is suffering in the world today. And I agree that's a question that we as Christians have to answer. But it's not just we Christians who have to answer the question of the problem of pain. It's a question that every single person on the face of the planet has to answer. And I think that it's much harder for people who do not believe in God, who do not believe in the Christian gospel, to answer this question. See, the fact that God is large and in charge, that God is is sovereign over everything, gives us hope. 
gives us hope in the midst of our hard times. That when we can't see anything but the pain in front of us, that God can see the end of the story. When we don't know what's going on, that God knows how the story is going to end. God is not distant. God is present in the midst of our heartaches, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering. And that is good news. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking... Uh, at the book of First Peter. We're going to start a series on First Peter. And our series is going to be called Hope in Hard Times. See, the book of First Peter is written about this topic. How God's authority, God's uh, supernatural presence in the midst of our suffering and difficulties gives us hope in the midst of those hard times. I'm really looking forward to that time. I uh, hope you come back and join us for that. And God is large and in charge. See, we can't just banish God to a corner like our deistic culture wants to do. We can't just say, God, I don't want you around right now, so so go away. But when I do need you, you need to come to me. Let's not worship this false God of watered-down Christianity. Let's look at our second term, and that was therapeutic, okay? So we have uh, therapeutic and deism. Uh, Second term, therapeutic. If you remember at the beginning, we we mentioned that uh, a lot of people in our culture say that God wants me to be happy. This is the topic for this second conversation. See, a lot of people will say that the purpose of religion is for us to be happy. In fact, that's the purpose of our lives, is to live a good, happy life. This is why we have so many people that will tell you to follow your heart, uh, to trust your heart. And they'll say, uh, if you want something, you should go get it because the purpose of your life is to be happy. But this is the exact opposite of what the Bible tells us. Jeremiah 17 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? One of the things that I pride myself on is uh, my self-awareness. So if I'm at the Y and I'm playing a pickup basketball games with, game with some guys, I know that my role on the team is not to be the superstar. My role is to play defense and then run like crazy while I'm on offense. Because I know that if there's anyone within 15 feet of me and I'm not within two feet of the basket, I'm never going to get the ball in the hoop. When we're playing slow pitch softball, I know that my job is not to try to crank it out of the park. It's to try to get singles. And some of the people who uh, are on our slow pitch team know that I have a hard time even getting that done. I know my uh, self. I know my abilities. I have a decent self-awareness there. But it also applies to my understanding of my own heart. See, when people tell me to trust my heart, I get really nervous. Because is there anything less trustworthy than my deceitful heart in the midst of an emotional decision? No, I'm going to side with Jeremiah and say, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand its ways? Our culture tells us the exact opposite, that you should seek after what your heart wants, that you should live the way that your heart wants you to. Uh, How many of you guys know the, the movie A Walk to Remember? This is popular about 10 years ago. This is found in this movie. Uh, Walk to Remember is about this young Christian girl uh, who befriends a non-Christian, and it's about their story. Uh, the, the Christian girl uh, is having a conversation with her dad, who happens to be a pastor, once in the middle of the movie, about whether she should date an unbeliever. And he's really kind of hesitant about it. And at the very end, she throws down the trump card, and, and she says, God wants me to be happy. That's the end of the discussion. God wants me to be happy. 
You know, I think as evangelicals, as Christians, I think we're, we're partly to blame for this. Because when something like A Walk to Remember, something that's remotely Christian in Hollywood, comes out, we just flock to it in droves. We get so excited. And we, we bring all of our friends to it and say, hey, check this out. Check this out. It talks about Christianity in a semi-good light. And our friends come to it and they say, oh, this is what Christianity is all about. God wants me to be happy. I want myself to be happy. We have something in common there. I can be a Christian too. As Christians, as we promote this sense of God wants me to be happy, we end up shooting ourselves in the foot and promoting this sense of cultural Christianity in our lives. And that's our second transition this morning, that we transition from thinking of God as Father to God as Grandfather. From God as Father to God as Grandfather. Now let me explain that. Fathers love their children holistically. That means that they, at times, say no. That means, at times, there is going to be grace-saturated punishment when necessary. That means seeking the best for your children, even when they don't want it themselves. It's a love that is holistic and wholly involved in the lives of their children. But we see a transition from that to understanding of God as grandfather. Now, for grandfathers, they love their children too, or their grandchildren too, uh, but they're not as involved in their lives. And because they're distant and removed, they're able to take a little more of a passive role. They can just sit back and be the person who uh, continues to just love and, and always says yes and sometimes even spoils them. You could also say that God is more of an uncle in this role. Uh, all of the good parts of, of showing yes and, and saying yes to the, the children And none of the tough love and none of the grace-filled love. We see a transition in our society from God as father to God as grandfather. It's interesting because, in a way, this understanding of God wants us to be happy is is found in the Bible. How many of us know Romans 8.28? Yeah, Romans 8.28 is a pretty popular Bible verse. uh, And we know the... Uh, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, we like that verse. We like talking about uh, everything working to good for us who love God. Of course, we we try to mumble on the last part about being called according to his purpose, but that's that's besides the point this morning. Uh, But how many of us know Romans 8, 18? Just 10 verses before that. Here it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, Romans 8.28 is written in the context of Romans 8.18. In the midst of the suffering, God will work for our good. It doesn't look like us being happy a lot of times when God is working for our good. But God is still at work on our behalf. It's not the ultimate purpose in our lives to be good. What is the ultimate purpose according to the scripture? Uh, It's found in Matthew chapter 22. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, and him being Jesus there, a question to test him. He said, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great commandment and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I love the way a group of theologians put it a while ago. They said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. All of creation was made with the purpose of glorifying God. And as a part of his creation, our purpose in life is to glorify God. A lot of times that doesn't look like our own happiness. But at the same time, we're supposed to enjoy God and to seek him with a deep-seated joy, a deep-rooted joy that plays out in the glorification 
of God. See, for us, we exist for more than ourselves. A lot of times when we think of cultural Christianity, their worldview is just too small. It's too focused on ourselves in this perspective. We need a bigger picture of God. We need a bigger picture of the world that isn't just focused on what I want, but rather focused on God himself. That brings us to our third focus this morning, and that is on moralistic, as Christian Smith puts it. Moralistic. Uh, Basically, all religions on the face of the planet, according to this viewpoint, want us to live good, moral lives. This is the, por- the purpose of cultural Christianity, for us to live good moral lives. This, is, after all, is what God wants for us, according to cultural Christianity. wants us to live good lives, to get along with our neighbors, to, uh, to be good people. We may struggle with our sins, but of course, sins are just external actions. Uh, the, the most important verse, according to this understanding of Christianity, is found in Luke 6. Luke six thirty one. it says this, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. It's called the golden rule. Uh, it's considered to be the most important verse in the Bible by many cultural Christians. Uh, and it's a good verse, don't get me wrong. It teaches us how to flesh out uh, how we love those who are around us. But it's not the main, most important verse in the Bible. It just tells us how to love those who are around us. See, according to this moralistic understanding of Christianity, we're just supposed to manage our sins. We're just supposed to get them under control and take care of them, to cover them up rather than to confess them and to have someone die for them, to take them away. We just have to keep our sins in check, and that is the purpose of Christianity according to this perspective. Of course, the understanding of good in this is pretty interesting. It's, uh, it's very customizable. Good, when you ask someone what does it mean to be good, according to this worldview, uh, good is always just one level worse than what you are yourselves. So if you were to ask uh, the person who is uh, saying too much, spending too much time at work rather than with his family, he'll say, well, I'm still a good person because at least I, I don't have a porn problem. You ask the person who has a porn problem, and they'll say, well, I'm still a good person because I'm not cheating on my wife. And then you ask the person who's cheating on his wife, say, I'm still a good person because I love this other woman, and, you know, God wants me to be happy after all, and I haven't killed anyone. As you talk to people about what does it mean to be good, according to this worldview, it's always one level worse than what they are. If it wasn't so sad, it would be pretty funny. This is why According to this cultural Christianity, just about everyone's going to go to heaven. Because everyone is good in their own eyes. Everyone thinks that they're all right. That God's forgiveness is going to make up the rest of the grounds. Because after all, love is God and that's how it works out. So everyone is going to go to heaven according to this perspective. That brings us to our third transition. And that is this. That we see a transition from the gospel being good, a good news to the gospel being good advice from good news to good advice. See, Christianity is just a way that God decided to tell us how to make ourselves better according to this perspective on Christianity. But the gospel is more than just good advice. In fact, morality, living a good life without the gospel is is literally hell on earth. I love the way that that a pastor from the 1800s named Charles Spurgeon put it. He says this, Morality may keep you out of jail, but it takes the blood of Jesus to keep you out of hell. 
Morality may keep you out of jail, but it takes the blood of Jesus to keep you out of hell. You talk with Christians who uh, have lived in Salt Lake City before or even visited. They'll say that it is one of the toughest places to minister on the face of the planet because it's such a moral place. It's one of the most moral cities in the United States, but also at the same time, there's this spiritual darkness that hovers over it because the gospel is absent in that city. It's a morality without the gospel, without the good news. And again, in a way, we as Christians are partially to blame for this. See, somewhere along the way, we lost uh, our ultimate purpose in this life. Our ultimate purpose as Christians is to glorify God through spreading the gospel throughout all of the nations. And somewhere along the way, we just decided, that's pretty tough. It's pretty tough telling people about Jesus. So let's just try to get people to behave. Let's just try to get them to live moral lives. Back in the 80s, the moral majority did a lot of good for the, for the United States. Also did a lot of bad for, cultural, for Christianity itself because it switched the, uh, the purpose of, of the gospel from getting people to recognize Jesus as their savior to getting people to just live good lives, to live good moral lives. How many of you guys have seen the movie, or the TV show rather, Seventh Heaven? Back from the, the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, Seventh Heaven tells us about this one pastor uh, named Robert Camden and his entire family, seven kids, and basically chronicles the stories of, of their life. Uh, every issue addresses, an, or every episode addresses a new issue in the Camden family. And it's interesting because just about every episode ends with the family sitting in church. And Pastor Camden is sharing a story, a good moral story or moral lesson about what the people should be doing. So, for example, there's an episode where Lucy, one of the children, uh, chews too much gum. I know that's a pretty big deal these days, uh, chewing too much gum. And so the, the moral lesson at the end of this, at the episode is you need self-control. There's an episode where Matt, another one of the kids, uh, spends some time with friends that are on the, you know, in the wrong crowd. And so the moral lesson at the end of the episode is you should listen to your parents and should hang out with good people. Season, or this show ran for 11 seasons. It's about a pastor and his family, and not once was the gospel shared. Not once in 11 seasons. See, I think Satan likes shows like Seventh Heaven. Because when you watch a show like Seventh Heaven, you can come away from it saying, you know, I got this. I'm under control. I, I, I just need to make a few corrections and then I'll be fine in my life. But you watch a show like Breaking Bad. Now, I'm not saying that you should watch a show like Breaking Bad. I'm not saying that you shouldn't watch a show like Breaking Bad. But when you watch that, you're never going to come away with just saying, you know, I just need to make a few course corrections in my life because it just talks about how wicked humanity is. It's going to take a whole lot more than a few course corrections for Walter White to get his life back on track. It's going to take the blood of Jesus to get his life back on track. That's why I think Satan gets a little more nervous with, with shows like Breaking Bad that have good, uh, good ratings in TV than he does with shows like Seventh Heaven. Kind of interesting and backwards because we have lost our perspective as Christians on what the ultimate purpose in our lives are. Of course, this isn't what the Bible tells us, what sin is. Sin isn't just 
external actions, but it's rather a part of who we are. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, and we see the fall of humanity in the garden, they, they run from God, they're ashamed, and they try to cover themselves up with fig leaves. And when we try to live good moral lives, that's basically what we're trying to do. We're trying to cover ourselves up with fig leaves. We might have some big fig leaves. They might be pretty impressive looking fig leaves. But at the end of the day, they are just fig leaves. Isaiah describes this in a very graphic way. He says this in Isaiah 64. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Gospel is good news. It's not just good advice. But as we hear that, we might be saying, well, where on earth is the good news in that? And at first, it's not good news. In fact, it's really bad news. But the good news is what comes after the bad news. That Christ came to make a way for us to have relationship with him. That we no longer have to cover ourselves up with fig leaves, but we can submit ourselves to God and receive his salvation. That's what Christianity truly is. The good news of Christianity isn't just good advice on how we can make ourselves right before God. It's truly good news of coming before God and saying, all right, God, here I am. I'm done trying to do this on my own. I'm done trying to cover up my sins. I need to be clean. I need you to take away my sins. And that's what Jesus does on the cross for us. And that's the good news of Christianity. In the midst of a world that tells us do more, Christianity tells us that Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all for us. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe this morning that as you're hearing this conversation about cultural Christianity, you may say, well, I, I line up with cultural Christianity a lot more than regular Christianity. I just encourage you to trust in Jesus, to place your faith in him this morning. And for some of you, you might say, okay, I'm not a cultural Christian, but I see that temptation. I see the way that my heart can sometimes lean that way towards cultural Christianity. So what am I supposed to do with my life? A couple different suggestions for us. First, if you have a tendency to gravitate towards God being distant and impersonal, just encourage you to look at the Bible from cover to cover. Just look at the story of the Bible and see how God is actively involved in the lives of the people there. How God is not an impersonal, distant God, but rather he is actively involved in human history. For that matter, uh, I encourage you to keep a prayer journal. If you keep a prayer journal, even for just three months, uh, you'll begin to see how much God is involved in your life. For that matter, just pray. There's no greater way to feel intimacy with God than to spend time praying with him. If you struggle thinking that that this life is just about me being happy, I encourage you to just begin thinking about who God is in relationship to who we are as humanity. When we begin to see this relationship, that, that God is so much bigger and so much greater than we are, and that I have been devoting myself to a small, puny life, when I could join in with the story of God, we begin to see a transition from thinking that this life is all about me and my happiness to thinking of this life being about ways that I can live for Jesus. Another way you can do this is just to start doing things that are for other people. 
Volunteer time at the Dream Center. Volunteer for time at Many Hands Market for things here at church. Focus on others and on their happiness, and you'll begin to take part in the grand story of God. Maybe you struggle with thinking that Christianity is just good advice on how to live a good life. If you do that, if you struggle with that, I just encourage you to look to the cross. So glad that, that Steve led us in the song, uh, Lead Me to the Cross, before our time uh, in, in God's Word this morning, because it's such a true statement that God would lead us to the cross, that we would look to the cross, because when we look to the cross, we can't deny the power of the gospel. When we look to the cross, we can't come away with an, illu- an illusion that this sin that I'm doing is, is no big deal to God because God hates sin so much that he went to the cross to get rid of it. But also at the same time, God loves us so much that he went to the cross for us to have a relationship with him. Friends, that's the good news this morning, that Jesus has paid it all. That Jesus has made a way for us to be cleaned through his work on the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for paying it all. God, we are so grateful for your work on our behalf, how you have poured out your love on us at the cross, but not only at the cross, but each and every day. And God, we pray that you would continue to do so and that we would continue to seek your face in all things. God, for anyone here who is struggling with uh, this moralistic therapeutic deism or uh, with this cultural Christianity, God, we pray for your grace and your strength to overcome. God, that we would first and foremost see the gospel as good news of how we can live in relationship with you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.